Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, today we're going to talk about a topic that is particularly near and dear to my heart. Uh, you know, I started studying Mandarin at 15 years old, actually, and I've been doing it uh, almost uh, 30 years now. Uh, you know, some guys have girlfriends all over the world wherever they go. Not me. I've got Mandarin teachers wherever I go. <laughs> I, you know, so it's really, and I've been doing it twice a week for uh, the past 30 years now, and so it's something of an obsession slash passion slash interest. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it's also brought us to the attention of uh, the fact that in Africa there is a growing interest about learning Mandarin. You know, Cobus, we've seen over the past few years you know, these wonderful propaganda pieces that Xinhua puts forward of you know these happy Chinese teachers teaching these happy Africans Mandarin Chinese, and it's just everybody's smiling and everybody's writing characters, and it looks just so much fun. We know, of course, the reality is very different on the ground. Um, and what came up, uh, the reason why we're bringing this up today is because we had a very lively conversation on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject, where we posted a uh, an article: uh, Should Ugandan schools teach Mandarin? And this came out on August 22nd by the Wits uh, Journalism Project, Reporting Project, the China Africa Reporting Project. Kobus, uh, I'm actually going to defer to you to say what university. It's Witzwatersund. It's Witwatersrand. Okay, Witwatersrand. My, uh, my, uh, is that Afrikaans? I mean, the name. Yes, it's okay. it's the original Afrikaans name for the the the, geo, the geological area where Johannesburg is located. I am exposing my ignorance of South African uh, <laughs> linguistics here. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the Wits China Africa Reporting Project, which is a fantastic project, and I really recommend you follow them on Facebook uh, as well as our Facebook page as well. They put up a a nice long post about whether or not Chinese should be taught in Ugandan schools, and the conclusion at the very very end of the article. Is at the end of the day, it's not that important.、Uh, and then this also then prompted a, a discussion on our Facebook page. So, Kobus, before I get to、uh, our Facebook page, I'd like to kind of get your sense on whether or not you think that there is a market in Africa or a need on the continent to study Chinese as the engagement between China and Africa continues to grow. Or do you kind of come down on the side of some of the government officials in Uganda that say, you know what? On one hand, we recognize that it's important because China is an emerging global power, but at the end of the day, our needs are far more pressing, are far more immediate, and Chinese is just really not a practical skill to have. Yeah, you know, kind of, I'm a little like you in the sense that I've been learning language for a long time. I've been learning Mandarin for for a few years, but I've been learning Japanese for much longer than that. And、um, my knee jerk reaction is always like, yes, more language. You know, kind of language is inherently good. It's inherently,、um, you know, kind of it gives you such a it's it's. It's so good conceptually and, and cognitively. You know, kind of it, it, it strengthens your your thinking generally so so much. But then when I actually started thinking about what it's going to take to to bring you know kind of Mandarin into Ugandan high school curriculums, for example, the amount the, the you know the number of teachers that would have to be imported, the kind of financial outlay,、um, and to balance that against you know all of the other things that Uganda you, that Uganda needs to to establish in their curriculum, I was kind of started. To come down a little bit on the on the government side,、um, you know, kind of my 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 feeling was that maybe what Uganda should be 
concentrating on is developing things that China would want to buy, because then China would, you know, kind of would be willing to negotiate in whichever language comes, you know, kind of is, is available. Um, you know, kind of just because Ugandans can speak Chinese doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be able to do more business with China. No, not necessarily. And uh, let me go to our Facebook page here because this uh, brought up a really interesting debate. And so I'm going to start with uh, a very detailed and thoughtful comment that came from uh, Coco Marguerite. And and she wrote, and, and, and I'm quoting here, quote, Hell no. If I want to do business in China, especially if I want to interact with the local people, the first thing I will do is learn Cantonese, Mandarin, or Wu. The fact that she referenced Wu is really interesting to me. Uh, I absolutely have no problem with any of these investors in Africa and China's increasing presence on the continent. What bothers me is the new, quote, emerging upgraded version of colonialism, as a friend calls it. There's that word again, Cobus. It has taken us decades to build and teach our children our rich heritages and traditions, yet it seems as whenever a temporary financial opportunity pops in on the horizon, we quickly forget what the French, the English, German, Dutch did to us. Wow, there it is. That is a, a pretty strong argument against the teaching of Chinese. Uh, I disagreed with, uh, with, with Coco Marguerite on a couple of different points and respectfully where I think I share your point of view that learning languages of any kind are important. I'll also make the argument that Chinese is different than, say, Dutch or German, in part because China today is on a power that uh, is on a scale of power that is just so much larger. And, and it's important that, you know, people, young people learn languages of all cultures because it's not just about the language. It's also about the culture. And, and that's something that's important, too. So maybe the middle ground, Kobus, is not this idea of, you know, putting it in the curriculum for the masses, but maybe following what the U.S. has done. And in the U.S., frankly, it's the elites. You know, I learned Chinese in a very posh, expensive boarding school um, long before it ever made its name into a public school. Um, and still to this day, it's mostly the, the private schools that are teaching Chinese. It's not really in the public school curriculum. Uh, so what, about, what do you think of the idea that the elites uh, have access to Chinese, as we see in the West? Um, is that maybe an area that uh, Uganda, Kenya, and other African countries and educational systems can pursue? I think if the elites learn Chinese, that would probably have, uh, you know, that that would be the way to, to have it have more immediate economic impact. Um, you know, kind of because elites tend to be, you know, kind of decision makers anyway. They tend to be the people who travel to China anyway. Um, so, you know, kind of that might be a way to, to build business links quicker. Um, I tend to agree with you. Um, I disagreed a little bit with Coco Marguerite on a different point. Um, I don't think, you know, kind of the, the growth of, chi- of Chinese um, is similar to English, Dutch or German in, in, in South Africa because you know the, the one the one crucial difference is that as the English moved in um, to South Africa, for example, you know kind of during colonial times, they actually destroyed um, educational infrastructure as that already existed and replaced it with English language ones so they wiped out local language teaching and then replace it with English language ones. Um, and I mean, obviously China isn't doing that, you know, kind of the, the China, you know, kind of the, just because it's a Confucius Institute, you know, when the Confucius, Confucius Institute arrives at an African university, they don't first smash the African la- literature division of, of the humanities department, you know, kind of the, it's, it's, it's adding something. So, um, uh, you know, kind of, I don't think the analogy works. It, uh, yeah, no, it definitely doesn't work. I mean, and that's again, the dangers of bringing up colonialism. 
is, you know, it was a different time and a different era, and this is not the same in that sense. I mean, certainly we can talk – that's a whole different discussion which we brought up in a number of different shows. But the, the other point on it is that there's this perception that to study Chinese means you have to obviously go to China. And one of the issues that we've talked about with the Chinese in Africa is really how – Difficult it is for the first-generation Chinese migrants, whether they represent state-owned enterprises or, you know, small to medium enterprises, um, their difficulty in communicating. Now, ironically, uh, Chinese is a tonal language, and in many African dialects, they are tonal as well. And one of the things that I noticed in the DRC where I lived, which was how, how easily the Chinese picked up Lingala, uh, which was is the Western DRC um, main dialect. And what's, what I find interesting is that, you know, there's a lot of question about whether these kind of shop owners, and this is the kind of small migrant, the SME migrant, if you will, the small to medium-sized enterprise migrant, uh, which is independent, they are, what I find, assimilating. And so Carolyn Mason, one of the things that she wrote on the Facebook page, she said, quote, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Let the Chinese learn the local languages, wherever it may be. And before anyone starts on about British colonialism, I would dearly love to undo what was done in the past. But I could not. So, you know, I think that's a, a false perception that a lot of people have about Chinese migrants is that quite a few actually are learning the language. But at the same time, uh, probably more do not speak the language. And to me, that's where the opportunity lies for places like Uganda, which is as the Chinese are coming in. And we, we had a show just last week about the growing presence of the Chinese in Uganda, uh, that it does present opportunities for people to be that cultural and linguistic bridge between uh, the Chinese and, say, Uganda. So, the, you know, we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily talking about going to China per se, because that was another kind of piece of feedback that came up saying, well, how are people going to afford to move to China if they want to study this language? Yeah, I mean, you're not going to have China, China's coming to Africa in the sense that you're not going to have China, you're not going to have this, obviously, you know, the Confucius Institutes in the first place is the great example of lots of, of Chinese teachers actually, you know, being moved to Africa. Um, um, in order to teach. Um, two, two things about that is, you know, A, obviously it, it costs a lot of money to do. So it's very difficult. It's, it's, it's one thing to do it at one university. It's a diff different thing to, to, to switch over your entire high school system, you know, in that direction. I don't know who was supposed to pay for that. And also, um, I think it under, people tend to not appreciate the kind of levels of stress, you know, kind of it, you know, involved for, for these Chinese teachers who are actually now teaching overseas. Obviously, you know, in East Asia, they're also in Japan. Um, there are lots of people who are very excited about moving overseas to teach Japanese, for example. And it's quite a competitive thing to, to do, um, to, to get that uh, license to do it. But, you know, the, the experience of actually moving somewhere else and teaching is not necessarily an easy thing. Um, you know, in, in, in you know, in my case, um, you know, I was I was doing Mandarin um, at university level um, at Stellenbosch in uh, last year, um, and you know, kind of one of the teachers was was freshly there, freshly from Beijing, and he actually burst into tears in front of the class just out of stress. Um, and I mean, it wasn't a Lord of the Flies situation. I mean, this was just a you know university class. So um, you know, so I think it's it's easy to deploy people, but it's not it doesn't always necessarily work as smoothly as the Chinese government thinks it will. Well, it's a main part of the Chinese soft-powered foreign policy push that they're doing in Africa is to open up these Confucius Institutes. And for those of you 
you're not familiar with what Confucius Institutes are, uh, basically they're language and culture institutes very much along the lines of the Alliance Francaise that the French government supports, the Goethe Institute that the Germans do. Uh, the United States has its uh, – I forget what the Americans call it. Um, but they have basically an English language education and libraries and, and, and you know, uh, linguistic and educational initiatives that they put forward. And so the Chinese are now getting into this and they're very, very proud of the fact that they've got you know dozens of these Confucius Institutes all over the world. And as part of what they do is they pay the full freight of these Chinese teachers to to come over to these foreign countries and teach for two or three years. Uh, you know, it's not just in Africa. This is also happening in the Los Angeles Unified School District uh, where, you know, Chinese, Chinese government-paid teachers are coming and the LA Unified doesn't have to pay anything for it. So this is not simply an African phenomenon here. Um, you know, but at Stellenbosch, in some ways, which is also a Confucius Institute, that does represent a little bit of the model that I'm talking about. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but Stellenbosch is really a university for what I would consider elites, right? And so these elites are getting trained in the language and then going on to to use it. Yes, um, so I think the the situation with the you know is is slightly more complicated in the sense that the um, the Chinese government gives money and they they give the funding for this, but uh, the local u- the local university has to pass through certain um, processes to, to, to get a Confucius Institute, and they you know kind of part of it is is um, you know. Giving space, uh, office space, um, and, and a certain amount of logistical um, and institutional support, so it, it doesn't come completely for free. In the case of um, of Stellenbosch, um, that support came via um, uh, the gu- uh, guy called Chris Becker, who's, who's the the head of um, of Naspash, which is you know which we discussed before, which is a, a massive um, South African media conglomerate, um, which with very big. Um, uh, investments in China, um, and he, uh, you know, kind of he. I'm not sure exactly how that that worked, but he was instrumental um, in arranging some of the financing to set up an actual Chinese language, like Mandarin language chair, at at Stellenbosch University, which is integrated into the Modern Languages Division. So, it you know, kind of I think Stellenbosch University is a little bit more of a hardcore, heavyweight, you know, kind of situation than than most Confucius institutes at most African universities. And the other side of this, of course, is the the, the campaigns that the Chinese are doing to fly over thousands of African students to Beijing, Shanghai, and other cities uh, to participate in their universities. One of the things that I've noticed from my own experience in China is how quickly African students from across the continent, and it's really been something quite remarkable, uh, tend to pick up Chinese much faster than I would say uh, students from other countries do in other regions of the world, in part because I think, again, so much of the the African linguistic mindset and, and training is very, very similar in many ways linguistically to the Chinese, um, which is oftentimes tonal. These are oftentimes oral languages, not written languages. Um, and so, you know, learning Chinese is not as big of a jump for, for a lot of African students, just from my own anecdotal experience. Um, but I'll come back to my final point on this. And what I don't like about this conversation is, you know, this this attitude, and we saw a little bit of it on our Facebook page of, you know, what the hell do the do, do, do Africans need to learn Chinese for, Ugandans need to learn Chinese for? And we'll go back to the beginning of our conversation, Kobus, where, you know, I think that whether it's Chinese, French, German, it doesn't matter to me what language people are learning. But in our new globalized era, 
you know, Africa is already cut off from the rest of the world in so many ways. We talked about earlier this week the fact that, you know, only 5% of world trade passes, no, 5% of FDI, 3% of world trade goes through Africa. Um, and so for, for people to say, you know, you know, we don't need to learn foreign languages, um, I think that's a big mistake in the long run. I think ultimately everybody around the world should be speaking as many languages as possible and understanding as many different cultures as possible. I just think it's the healthier thing to do and the healthier direction to go. And I see this nativism that comes out particularly from the African diaspora where they say, you know, don't dilute the culture – don't and that's that's a BS argument on my part, you know, because learning a foreign language is not diluting the culture. So that's my little rant at the end of the show. I just wanted to uh, to to kind of get your take on it as well. What's your final thoughts? I could not agree more. Kind of um, one of the reasons I think why Africans find it so relatively easy to pick up Chinese is because they already come from multilingual environments. You know, Nigeria has like has hundreds of languages, so Africans are already used to to jumping from language to language. That's an incredibly valuable skill. Um, you know, so Africa, South Africa, for example, has eleven official languages, which is insane, like in terms of of dealing with administration. But um, you know, in, in terms of, of the kind of cultural richness of, of, of Africans themselves and their, their coping skills, um, it's, it's invaluable. You know, kind of one of the reasons, you know, like um, one of the ways that, that, that Japanese people frequently flagellate themselves one, you know, a few times a year is by quoting this, the, you know, kind of the amount of money that is spent yearly in Japan on, on English language education and the kind of low levels of English language ability in Japan. And, you know, kind of it's completely not surprising because Japanese, you know, kind of Japanese people are used to a system where everything is catered to specifically Japanese you know, concerns in a specifically Japanese idiom where it's never, you know, kind of general, you know, just as, as a, as a, as a generalization, you know, kind of most Japanese people who haven't studied overseas are never expected to, for example, explain their own system of doing things, their own administrative system, for example, uh, from an objective perspective, you know, kind of where they have to, to explain how something works to people from the outside. They just never have to do that, which means I find it very difficult. Well, whereas Africans have to do that every day. They're always dealing with people who, who speak half of their language or where they speak half of someone else's language. That is an incredibly valuable skill, not only in terms of language learning, but in terms of the kind of, you know, kind of, of jumping into other people's perspectives of being you know kind of being flexible mentally so yeah i'm completely you know end of my rant as well i mean i I completely agree with you well those are our rants obviously we take the side of kind of multiculturalism multilingualism um you know part kobus you speak japanese i speak chinese you've studied japanese uh for quite some time and, and, and also you did quite a bit of studies in chinese you said uh so we may not be the most objective uh you know experts on this but nonetheless just from our own experience and my own personal experience uh, you know, the ability to speak Chinese. I'm studying Vietnamese now. I grew up speaking French. And I found that just speaking these languages just has opened up so many doors personally, intellectually, and now professionally um, that I think that as many young Africans, if they have those same opportunities, that would be great. So there we go. Sermon is over. Um, that, But we want to hear what you think. We've got this great conversation going on over on Facebook. You know, find the post that we did earlier this week on it, or you can comment right here on this post uh, and tell us what you think at uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. You can also find us on Twitter and tell us what you think there. Kobus, what's the best place on Twitter that they can find you? I am at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. 
And you can find me at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm also on Google Plus at gplus.to slash olander. Uh, and uh, finally, you can find us, of course, in Chinese if you are a Mandarin-speaking African, a Mandarin-speaking Westerner, European, or if you're just a Chinese regular user of Weibo, uh, you can find us at weibo.com at uh, weibo.com slash uh, there it is, China Africa Project. And of course, the best place to find us is right here on our podcast that we produce now three times a week. Uh, and uh, you can find us on iTunes, uh, in the Google Play Store, uh, as well as on the Stitcher Network, SoundCloud, and finally on the BlackBerry Network, particularly those of you in South Africa. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next time with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. <laughs>